Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. It's good to be with you. I'm honored to be here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Donald Zimmerman, and I am, <laughs> thank you, I I'm on staff uh, at Doxa Church, which is in many ways kind of uh, Icon's big sister church across the water. Uh, I've known uh, Pastor Justin for a very long time, over a decade. He's been a good friend to me. He's been uh, a brother and uh, for a long time uh, kind of a partner in the trenches of ministry, uh, trying to make much of Jesus along the way. At a church in northern Nevada uh, starting in 2002-ish. And it started off with a group of people that look a lot like this. And so I have a very special place, and I mean this with all sincerity, I have a very special place in my own heart for church plants, for kind of the new outposts and new beginnings uh, of church world. And so I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you're here in this place, in this time, uh, preaching this message and living out this message from this Savior. There's nothing better you guys can give your life to. And I'm going to try and say that in a lot of different ways tonight. Now, it's either my good fortune or, more likely, Justin's strategic planning that I get to preach to you the particular passage that he gave me uh, tonight. You will see very quickly it's a little suspicious that he's not here and that he's allowing me to take on this very difficult passage. I probably should have known better because it's Justin. And, uh, yeah, so we're going to be very, very interested to see. It's probably, you can make a case, this may be the most controversial couple of sentences in the, in the New Testament. And so here I am. So there's good news and there's bad news. There's good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is this is going to be a very uh, interesting passage and likely very difficult. And the good news is, is I'm not going to be here next week. So that's that. Not only did he give me a, a, a passage with a hand grenade in it, uh, he gave me a passage that's got at least three sermons in it. And so I'm going to do my best to unpack these three ideas. We're going to move pretty quickly through all these things. We will briskly walk through them one by one. Um, as always, we have to watch for context here. And this is important when we study the scriptures together, okay? The first half of chapter 14, uh, Paul made the case that clear, explicit preaching of God's word is, is better than some of the other spiritual gifts that may be a little more confusing and even unintelligible. Not that the other gifts are bad or not useful at times, but nothing beats the crystal clear presentation of God's saving grace towards us. So with that, uh, I'd like to, to pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for this beautiful expression of your son, Jesus' bride. Father, thank you for the many ways in which you have already provided for ICON, the ways in which you are building ICON up. We pray that there continues to be lots of new life, that ICON would be a place where those that know you are discipled and understand your love more deeply. Those that don't know you can come into a saving knowledge of who you are and how much you love them. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. So Paul says... Back in verse 19, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians 9, in order to instruct others, then 10,000 words in a tongue. And he's going to continue this thought process through the passage that we walk through. In fact, I think we can actually be very certain that if Paul walked into Icon this evening, he would say that the best church gathering proclaims Christ through a prepared community. 
The best church gathering proclaims Christ through a prepared community. So I also want to warn you about this, uh, this passage. It's baited. And that is to say the part that is most likely to grab your attention is likely not the part that is the most deserving of our attention tonight. So he starts in verse 26. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul today is going to give us very practical instruction on the church service. And we call it a service, or in some cases call it a gathering, for a very, very specific reason. That is to say that when we, the people of God, gather together, this becomes a church. Sometimes the church is gathered, as it is now. Sometimes the church is scattered, as it is throughout the week. But we are always the church. This building, when emptied of you and I, is not a church. At 5 p.m. on Sundays, there is a church at this address. Now, some of you may know this concept already. For some of you, this may uh, feel new. But you have to understand this piece, or Paul's words will not make sense to us. Paul is addressing the church gathered and building off of what he has been repeating. Most to bless God. Secondly, to bless others. And then last, to receive blessing ourselves. In that order. And this is why... The best church gathering proclaims Christ through a prepared community. In all of chapter 14 and much of this book, Paul has been redirecting us away from ourselves and thinking of others. Thinking that the, somehow the good things he has given us should terminate with us, turning us away from that kind of thinking. Away from simply walking into the gathering and watching for what we will receive, like some kind of spiritual shopping spree. Acting as though this celebration is a party thrown just for me. So we bless God, we look for ways to bless others, and then we look for the ways in which God and the community are blessing us. So I want to ask, how is Icon doing? How do the Icon gatherings stack up? If God's measure of a great Sunday, or I would extend even a great community group, is one that proclaims Christ through a prepared community, are you today part of the problem, or part of the solution. If you lived as though that were actually true, what would you say? So Paul gives in these verses some mechanical instructions. He's speaking one at a time, taking turns, submitting to one another, never assuming that our thoughts are God's thoughts, listening and weighing what is being said is essential, much like you're doing right now. Paul's instructions around prophecy challenge both the charismatic church and what most people would consider the reformed church of today. In that sense, he is an equal opportunity offender, or at least an equal opportunity challenger. To the charismatic church, he commands them to remember the purpose of the gifts that he gave them in the first place. And to the reformed church, he calls them to find a place for the gifts that he has given. To the charismatics, he says, use those gifts the way I designed them. To the reformed church, he says, use the gifts that I have given you. Uh, for us at Doxa, we create spaces for these kinds of gifts, for prophecy and interpretation, uh, in a few different ways. Um, number one, 
the elders spend open time in prayer asking God what he wants us to say and lead for the people of Doxa. And this is a part of our process of making all of our plans. And it particularly applies to when we plan for the teaching calendar for the upcoming year. And we're going to continue to build out times where people who believe they have the gift of prophecy have a place to actually get some reps. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in church world, if you have teaching gifts or prayer gifts, lots of opportunities for reps. If you have a prophecy gift, not so much. And then lastly, we have what we call at Doxa uh, Look Back Sundays. And it's similar where we provide an open mic for people to share what they believe God is saying to the whole church. Uh, That's a risky moment, just to be super honest. That is a risky moment when you hand the microphone to somebody that you may or may not know from the rest of your church life and say, what is it that you believe God is saying? Um, So far, uh, it's gone pretty well. Uh, I may come back in six months and say that's the worst idea we've ever had. So there's a few ways we currently are living this out, and I suspect, uh, and it has a lot to do with everything else that's happening at Doxa right now, we're going to continue to be stretched and continue to look for new ways to apply these verses. Because we want to agree with God fundamentally when he shows us that the best church gathering proclaims Christ through a prepared community. Uh, Being prepared is very important. Some of you who know me a little bit from Doxa World know that uh, my greatest passion outside, a friend that uh, from Nevada, where I'm from, that fly fishes a lot, he's more of a still water guy, which means he likes to fish ponds and lakes. I'm more of a stream and river kind of guy. And uh, a few years back, there's this particular lake, I won't tell you the name of it, because if he found out that I told you, he would literally kill me. Uh, there's a particular fairly off-the-map, known, uh, fairly unknown lake in the Sierra Nevadas that is stunningly beautiful, and it's only open for fishing, I think, a grand total of six or seven weeks in the year. Um, the problem is that you cannot get in your car and drive to this lake. You can drive and get within, I think, six or seven miles, and then you either have to hike, backpack, or bike in the rest of the distance. Uh, so if you want to bring a float tube and full fly gear, that's a lot of equipment, My friend has always elected to basically, he has a mountain bike and it's got like a little trailer behind it, okay? If it was flat, not that big of a deal. It is not flat. It is not flat. Yeah, you're climbing thousands of feet to get to this lake. So he gets out there opening day. He talks about it all year long. It's honestly so annoying. And he rides his bike. He packs it all up. He rides his bike to the top of this and his fly box isn't in his vest because he left it on top of his car seven miles back in the the parking lot. Uh, As if that weren't bad enough, dejected, because he literally can't fish. So he packs up all of his things, gets back on his mountain bike, and starts sailing down the hill. And as he's sailing down the hill, he hears all this noise next to him and looks over. And a bear is running alongside him, like five feet over, looking over at him, matching him stride for stride. (laughs) Uh, we have given him such a hard time about that. Uh, Like the bear knew that he had his flies back at the car. Uh, Anyway, it was not a good day for him. Needless to say, he was not prepared. And that totally affected the outcome of the day for him. When we both the opportunity and the confirmation to use those gifts. And I'll be honest, I wish I had more time to unpack this. This one is a big passion for me, um, especially because of my work with artists and musicians. But let me briefly say this. First thing is you have to figure out what your gift is, and you may have more than one. And you figure it out by trying stuff. You cannot learn the plays being on the sidelines. So serve someplace. Icon needs you to serve. You heard them say earlier, there's different serving opportunities. If you are not currently contributing, you've got to jump in. 
If you're not sure what your gift is, you can ask others that know Jesus and know you what they think your gift or your superpower is, so to speak. Number two, sometimes when you come together, there's not going to be a chance for you to use your gift. And that's okay. The win is being ready and prepared every time. Not Doxa, who about six weeks ago figured out for the first time in his discipleship of over 20 years that he has the gift of, of encouragement. And I'll be honest, it is, it's beautiful. It's awesome to watch him kind of work the crowd and look. And I know that he's doing so prayerfully. Uh, he's not being obnoxious about it. But he's been approaching uh, key leaders and different people in the church uh, almost every weekend and giving them an encouraging word just to build them up. It's awesome. Now, sometimes the timing, sometimes the topic or other factors are going to limit how we all use our gift. And that's okay. We've got to be prepared for that too. Lastly, number three, we submit the use of our gifts to others in the church and especially our leaders. In all cases, we have to be willing to make our contribution and have that evaluated to ensure that it aligns with God's word and that the skill is there to needed to make him the focus. Sometimes, especially for uh, those of you who maybe feel like you have some more of the prophetic gifting, you're going to think you heard something from God, and you're going to bounce that off some trusted community, and they're going to say something to the effect of, you know, I don't think that really sounds like what God would say. And that's okay. Again, you can't build the muscle without some reps and some room for air. But this so the practice of being prepared to contribute and submitting to one another is a great place to form our gifts. Humble submission to the body and the leaders of the church are actually marks of mature believers. So the point is to be ready to contribute. If you're ready to contribute, willing to not, and have submission to the evaluation of others, that is the recipe for a Holy Spirit-filled church. So let's get really practical. Let's say you've got the gift of encouragement. You know, when you walk in here on a Sunday, praise you walk in here. Ask God to tell you who it is that you are called to share an encouraging word with. Scan the room and then follow the Spirit's lead. Let's say you have the gift of prayer. You need to look for somebody that might need prayer. When you guys have your passing of the peace time, again, scan the room. Maybe God will call to mind somebody who needs prayer. Maybe you have the gift of mercy. There's uh, perhaps somebody in Icon who's hurting or struggling or just feeling super, super discouraged. Who can you then listen to and make them feel heard? Because God hears us. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Invite somebody over. Bring them over into your home. Hear their story. Learn what God is doing in their life. Because he's you. He's invited you into what he's doing. Just pause and think about that. Instead of just being above us or working around us, God works through us. That's a powerful truth. Verse 26 says that whenever uh, strength you see inside of yourself, when you look inside and see strength there, that God has put that there for the building up of others. And building others up takes time, it takes proximity, it takes repetition. Some people get discouraged when they use their gifts because they don't see fruit right away. And, you know, that's, of course, highly subjective. But you have to trust that God is at work. You've got to sometimes know that you're going to see the fruit and sometimes you won't. And when you see it, it's the greatest thing ever. But many of our rewards are waiting for us on the other side, and we cannot forget that. All right, so Paul continues in this passage. He ends this first section with this beautiful phrase that every single person in this room should memorize this week. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I want you to say that with me. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is in for me. God is not confused about you. He is not confused about your future. 
He's not confused about how he feels about you. He's not confused about the prayers that he has heard you pray. He's not confused about the decisions that you have made over the course of your life. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus understands every single weakness that we feel. God is not confused. He is certain. In fact, it's impossible to wonder what's going to happen. God's plans happen. But we experience confusion, right? One fight with a friend or a crisis at work or maybe the kids are acting out or a change to our calendar and we turn into a hot mess real fast. Well, why is that? Why do we experience confusion? Just start by looking at how we fit together. We've got this soul that longs for eternity packed in this, you know, cardboardish uh, wrapping that lasts 70 to 80 years if we're lucky. If we've decided to follow Christ, then we have a heart that's being made new, but it's also encased in a flesh that essentially hates God and all of his ideas, right? We live in this beautiful world made by a perfect God, and then the pinnacle of that creation, namely us, turn our back on him, launch a coup, war against him all the time. We have hopes for the future, and no means of guaranteeing that those things will come to pass. We have limited time, limited intellect, limited creativity, limited imagination, limited ability, limited energy, limited money, limited capacity, limited relationships. It's no wonder that from time to time we feel confused. That's not even to mention the fact that there's a whole realm that we can't see, namely angels and demons that are waging war around us, trying to convince us that their words are true. Is it any wonder we feel confused? And here's the thing. It's okay for us to feel confused. Because he's patient. When we feel lost, he guides us home. When we feel turned around, he offers us rest. He is the God of peace. And if we're honest, we're quick to think that God gets confused like us. But that's not the case. The Spirit of God is convicting, but not confusing. The Spirit of God is not controlled, but it's also not chaotic. The Spirit of God is unpredictable, but it is never unpurposeful. All right, so let's move on to bucket two. And I've titled this bucket, God Empowers Women. And if you're looking at 1 Corinthians 14, you know things are about to get interesting. Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Oh, fun, right? (laughs) All right. So, before we kick this hornet's nest, let's just remember a few things. Number one, context matters a lot. This letter is one cohesive writing. When Paul wrote this, it was conversation. And he wrote this whole letter knowing it would be read aloud in one sitting. So the context of this letter matters a lot. Number two, Paul and the rest of scripture is pro-woman. Paul is certainly pro-women speaking. He raised up Priscilla and, uh, and her husband to go challenge Apollos, which is one of his disciples in Acts 18. Paul sends Phoebe and entrusts her to deliver the book of Romans. Just for a moment, I know we we don't create scripture that's being added to canon these days, so this is hard for us to think about. But we'll see later in this passage, Paul, this will blow your mind. Paul is aware of the fact when he's writing scripture that it's going to be scripture in canon. That's crazy. And in the midst of that, he's got a relationship with this woman who apparently was rich, some kind of benefactor. She had made a lot of money, and she loved Jesus— 
And when he has to transport this text, he entrusts Phoebe to deliver this, the book of Romans. Paul commands the congregation to admonish one another, teach one another. All these one another statements in the Greek are without gender. They're gender neutral. There's no gender distinction. So clearly he expects these things to happen. Those are sung by the entire congregation. Women prophesied publicly in the New Testament church. And the men included in those congregations learned from those prophecies. So with those two big ideas in mind, that context matters and that God is pro-woman, let's look at this text. And maybe you're in here right now and you're very conservative and you think that all the ladies of Icon have to be silent. Maybe you're a feminist and you think this is the most backwards and misogynistic trash you've ever heard in your life. I'm happy to report that you're both going to be very disappointed before we're done, okay? This passage is like a huge intersection and scholars have offered a few paths forward for us. Some are more helpful than others and some have more exegetical integrity than others. So before we try to look at what Paul is saying, I want to cross a few things off the list. Number one, some would say that this passage was added later. The problem with that is that every single Greek manuscript includes the verse. There's a few manuscripts where the verse is added, uh, moved, kind of cut and paste out two verses down. But in every single case, in every single manuscript, it's included. So the fact, the case to be made for it being added later is very weak. Uh, Number two, clearly doesn't mean that because just three chapters ago, he gave specific instructions for how women are supposed to pray and prophesy. So he's not contradicting himself. Uh, Lastly, there's some scholars that have said over time that uh, it was because they were supposed to ask questions at home. And back then, uh, in that particular stage, most of the churches were meeting in homes, and so the, the delineation feels very foggy. That, to me, is not terribly clear. So let's talk about the possibilities that actually have some textual and biblical support. Okay, so some would say this passage is, is explained by a particular disruptive situation happening in Corinth. And there's a lot of modern scholars that fall in this camp. They were saying, in other words, somebody wrote Paul a letter and said there was a particular situation happening in Corinth, and that, uh, to be specific, they would say that there were a few women who were publicly shaming and chastising their husbands in the public gathering, in a way that was not only destructive to the gathering, but destructive to their marriages. Now, this idea has some merit, namely because the context of this passage is how you conduct the worship gathering. It's not about gender roles. So, this situation of these women blasting their husbands I would say a possible problem for that interpretation is that Paul seems to indicate this, that this is prescriptive and says at the very beginning, as in all the churches of the saints. So you have to figure out what to make of that. Option two, some would say that he is referring to women specifically interpret, interpreting uh, prophecy as an authoritative teaching for the church. Any of the 21 times, it's in reference to prophecy and interpretation and tongues. So that would mean that on the very short list of responsibilities that we assign to a qualified male elder in a local church, we would find this authoritative interpretation of prophecy. Now you may think, okay, interpreting tongues and prophecy, like whatever, like how often does that actually happen? Who cares, right? I can tell you this though, as an elder at Doxa, it happens more often than you, may, than you may think. People reach out and tell us, hey, I've been praying or I had a, a vision or uh, some passion, or uh, maybe just a story about why Doxa should participate in something moving forward. And they essentially pitch us. And in that moment, the elders of Doxa have to discern that and weigh that stuff out. And we take that very seriously, because we believe that God speaks through the people of the church. But we have to ultimately weigh those things out. 
So here's a short list of questions that we ask in those situations. I think it's helpful for us as pastors. I think it's helpful for you because if you're around church world long enough, somebody at some point is going to approach you and say, hey, I think God is saying this for your life. And I think this is a great uh, rubric or filter to, to think through things. Question one, does it glorify God or the speaker, church, or denomination? Question number two, does it contradict or align with scripture and God's character? Number three, does it build up the local church? Number four, is it spoken in love? Which, by the way, Paul just defined in 1 Corinthians 13. And then number five, and I think this one is very important, is the speaker humble, submitted, and self-controlled? So there's a few ways that this verse uh, can land. Um, Let's talk about what we do know he is saying for sure. In its context, Paul is saying that orderly worship matters because God's word matters. He's saying that if something is happening in the gathering that causes disruption and confusion, then we should all be discerning and honestly maybe even a little suspicious. Uh, I said, I mentioned earlier that I helped plant a church in northern Nevada. Um, We had group grew and grew and grew. And a couple of short years later, we were in a room much like this. And there was a few hundred of us in that room uh, worshiping and listening to the preached word. And the back doors of the church flung open. This guy kicked open the doors and came in and started screaming, This man is a false prophet! This man is a false prophet! And then he started sprinting and charging towards the stage. Now, thankful, thankfully for our uh, teaching pastor, uh, that particular day, the guy who was on the safety team was sitting in the front row that day. Um, he also was a professional UFC fighter. <laughs> and um, in a moment that I will never forget as long as I live, this guy came charging down the aisle, and my friend Rick uh, reached around and wrapped this guy up and took him down to the ground, just like Jesus would. And... And uh, they were able to kind of get him somewhat calmed down, escorted him outside, started talking with him. Um, All joking aside, we were convinced uh, by the time the police came and got him that he was possessed. He was demon-possessed. And now, there's a lot to be said about that story. But here's, here's the point. It was extremely disruptive. And so, does God disrupt our lives? Yes, of course. But the gathering is not to be known for being disruptive. In order for Christ to be the center of the church gathered, there should be a clearly proclaimed gospel message. Thomas Schreiner says this, and I think it's helpful. He says, the church is edified by understandable words, not by spiritual experiences without intellectual content. And that can't happen if we're all talking over the top of one another, or interrupting the preacher or the one praying or singing, or Alona when she's giving all the communication about what's happening in the church. We should work against the distractions and disruptions to the church service. And uh, I'll say this, here's a hot take. This is why coming to church on time matters in part. Uh, To distract the rest of the room is to go against what Paul is saying here, okay? And hearing through the word of Christ. In order for the faith that comes from hearing to happen, there's got to be order in the gathering. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to reinforce here. Gospel clarity matters. As evidence, this is why the pulpit has fundamentally driven the church, capital C, for 2,000 years. This is why, uh, this is, you know, kind of another area of ministry, but I help lead worship at DOXA, And any song that we think about adding to our catalog, uh, the songs that we sing together collectively at DOXA, there's basically kind of like a four-filter test. We have to verify that what the words are singing in the song are true, 
Is it reasonably clear? Um, is it beautiful? Does it capture the heart? And is it needed? In other words, is it saying something that we're not already saying someplace else? So there's this, these filters that we use. And we do, we do that in part because gospel clarity matters. So think about this for a moment. Heaven is a place of endless beauty, unfathomable enjoyment, stunning precision, and magnificent order. Heaven is a place of endless beauty, unfathomable enjoyment, stunning precision, and magnificent order. So, looking back over these passages, you've got some possibilities for those verses. You can study it more, decide for yourself. But I want you to know today that God is pro-woman. And we know that God, through Paul, has commanded women to use their gifts. We know that God is also a God of order. That his instructions here in this passage are in service of men and women using their gifts for the glory of God and the good of others. So let's look at this last bucket, this last part of the passage. He continues, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. All right, as I said, this is our last bucket. I'm going to be brief here. You know, anticipating their pushback, Paul reminds them that his words are inspired by God. He's reminding them that if anything about his teaching bothers them, it is not God who's off track. And we can heed that warning today. Not just this passage, but anything that you hear preached from the scriptures from this stage. It's easy to forget that God's word is often a remedy in our lives, but that it is also a sword. It has edges to it. In fact, if you read the Bible and you never come across anything that you disagree with, I would make the case that you're not paying attention. What you do with that disagreement, that matters. Are you going to ask God for more understanding? Or are you going to assume that God sees the world the same way you do? Will you get angry? Will you get frustrated? Will you push away from the table? In a cultural moment like this one, and it's funny, even an hour before church, watching the uh, protest, political protest across the street, is just a perfect picture of this. It's, just, it's easy to forget that Christianity has endured so many different cultures and movements over the last 2,000 years. It's been uh, alive and well in white cultures, in black cultures, in yellow cultures, in brown cultures, in affluent cultures, in impoverished cultures, in patriarchal cultures, in matriarchal cultures. The gospel goes on and on and on. And every single culture has a problem with Jesus. That's important for us to remember. Paul's culture was no different. And here's what's crazy. The letter that he's writing, the church at Corinth, This church is made up of people, some of whom were alive when Jesus was walking around. It's possible that there are people in this church that saw Jesus with their eyeballs. They didn't just read a letter from somebody else. I mean, just imagine that. This first generation of believers isn't even in the ground yet. And when you read the New Testament, you can see the problems that have already arisen. And they struggled. We know this. So how easy is it for us, even more, to be shaped by primarily shaped, not by the gospel, not by God's word, but by the conversations we have, or our families and friends, or our devices and what we see online, all of those things. 
Our culture is obsessed with independence. Absolutely head over heels in love with ourselves. And we've confused options for freedom. We will gladly hand over anything if we perceive that it gives us more options. And we want to further that narrative that we are the ones that are in charge. Tell me who to love. You can't tell me what to spend. You can't tell me who I am. And in this really twisted irony, our seemingly countercultural movement is actually becoming the primary culture, the culture of self. It is an effort to be different. And in the end, it actually ends up looking very much the same. So that wind of culture, whether that's talking about America or Seattle or Capitol Hill, that wind of culture blows harder and the rock of scripture remains. Showing us that one of the clearest ways to live a life of faith is in consideration of how your life affects others. And here's the kind of thing that Christ would say that would thin a crowd. If you are not interested in living a life in consideration of the kingdom and your impact on others, you are probably not born again. The fact is, the most controversial and countercultural thing you could do today is to live for God and to serve others. That is the secret to a beautiful life. One that is full of beauty. And it can be really, really hard. It's why Jesus said uh, several times that sometimes our relationship with him can feel like really flourish. I know that self has to die. Christ has to be big and I get to be small. Everything that he says in his word has to be in a closed hand. All of my hopes, my plans, whatever I think my talents are, all of that has to be in the open hand. And not because he's punishing me or trying to take anything, uh, including joy, away from me. But instead, he is at times trying to take away the things that will eventually harm me. And he's trying to replace them with the greatest gifts that he has. So with that, uh, I'm hopeful for you, Icon. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. It's good to see you. If the best church gathering proclaims Christ through a prepared community, I think that Icon is well on their way. Because gathering here together matters. Coming prepared to contribute here matters. The clarity with which Christ and his ways are preached matters. And it's in these orderly but Holy Spirit-filled moments, piercing voice speaks to each of us. The unpredictable but always purposeful spirit of God is alive. He is moving. He's moving here in Capitol Hill. And he is looking for gatherings of God's kids where they proclaim Christ and come prepared to see what God will do. Pray with me. Jesus, I believe every person in this room has a contribution to make to your kingdom and to your purposes and your mission. Sometimes that's obvious for us. Sometimes it's less obvious. Forgive us for the many ways and times in which we have made church and, that, and to be a part of what you're doing in the world. God, I pray you would continue to protect this church, provide for this church, move powerfully through the people of this church, recognizing that you are alive and well and yet you are working in these people. Give us a moment, God, of clarity. Allow us to listen for your voice in our hearts about how we can come prepared and use our gifts to be a dynamic and active part of what you are doing at ICON. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church.